Hello there, and welcome to Madison Bookbeat. I'm Jonas Gomez Tijerino. Today I'm joined by poet Sahara Majumdar to talk about the release of her poetry collection, The Unreliable Narrator Wakes Up. Sahara is a Madison transplant, hailing originally from West Palm Beach, Florida. She earned a Bachelor of Science in Applied Biomolecular Sciences and a minor in Mathematics from the University of Florida in Gainesville. In 2019, she moved to Madison for work. Since then, she has held roles as a technical solutions engineer for Epic, solution engineer for Included Health, and most recently, sales engineer for MindShift. The Unreliable Narrator Wakes Up is Sahara's first published collection. Thank you for being here with me today, Sahara. Thank you for having me, Jonas. Before we get started, Mm -hmm. so good to officially meet you. And thank you again for this opportunity. I'm like so excited to talk with you today. And I just love that you picked up my book. It's Mm -hmm. like something that I don't know. It's like it's like the dream of like you put something out there and people actually like pick it up and respond to it and want to talk to you about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so part of me also can't really believe this is happening and <laughs> I just really appreciate you. So thank you. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, I guess I just, thanks for putting it out. Like I said, it was yeah. a real great read. I felt compelled to reach out after, well, you know, you were there. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I I guess I want to start with a post that you made online. On your LinkedIn, you made a post that described the process of trying to get your work published. Uh, Ultimately, you decided to choose to publish independently. Could you share what your experience was like throughout that process? Yeah. So when I first started entertaining the idea of publishing any of my poems, I was entering a number of poetry contests. And these poetry contests have many different restrictions based on which publishing house it is, uh, what contest you're entering, you might not be allowed to have shared any of your poems via social media before. They can't be previously published in any other newsletters or that kind of thing. And it was getting kind of hard (laughs) to keep track of all of the restrictions across different competitions like that. So then I started to look into querying literary agents and going the traditional publication route. But I was just finding that, you know, I could spend X amount of hours querying agents and trying to get my poetry picked up and get that, you know, clout of being supported by a publishing house. Or I could invest the same hustle in self-publishing and then doing that networking with local bookstores and just local community members interested in poetry myself. And that would be a more fulfilling experience for me personally, because sharing these poems for me is about connecting with people that might resonate with some of the feelings that I share so yeah, I I think self-publishing made more sense for me, even though it gets a bad rap. I think it's a good way for poets to retain ownership over their content and be more involved in the distribution of their work. Right. You you mentioned similarly that it was like an empowering thing for you to self-publish. And with self-publishing, one of the interesting things about it is that you, like you said, you have essentially full creative control over how you want to put together your collection, how you want to present it, how you want to distribute. 
that said, I was curious how you came to the design of your um, of your chat book. And uh, for our listeners, the unreliable narrator appears as an all white chat book with a minimalist design on the front that features a wireframe inspired depiction of a woman taking off her mask. So yeah, what was the uh, the kind of thought process behind putting together this cover? Yeah, it was sort of a serendipitous moment when I made the cover. Uh, originally, it was just one version of the woman's face. And then I accidentally copied the image. And it just so happened that it laid on her face as though it was a mask being taken off. And I thought it was just kind of beautiful. And I was like, that's it. That's that's going to be it. So I can't take credit for the actual image itself, but the editing, that was me. Uh-huh. That's exciting to hear that that happened and that worked out for you that way. Because when I came across the, the book, the cover was one of the things that caught my attention first. I was like, oh, that's a very interesting nice. thing. And of course, the title itself was very clever. And um, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Yeah. It's so good to hear that you liked the cover because... When that happened, I was like, I hope this makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) It does. It most certainly does. Yeah. Okay. So how about we get into it and let our listeners hear a little bit of your work. Please read Wounded Pages on page three and uh, follow that up with Shirley, I Love You on page four. Sure. Okay. Wounded Pages. This is the first one in the chapbook. You remind me of a fresh notebook. Cracked open, page one, clean and crisp. Ink may have dropped on you before, but you didn't take it in. Not how it's meant to seep into you, bleed through the rest of you, fulfill you. No, you spit it back out. And though your pages may feel worn, your book remains to be written and still hesitant to open. So that's wounded pages. And then the next one was, surely I love you? Correct. Okay. Surely I love you. How do I know something so surely? Surely enough that if it were to change, I wouldn't know much of anything to be sure. But if it changes when I admit to it, when the pursuit of everything I've wanted can throw itself off its course, what makes it safe to feel and admit and confess when confessing is the demise of me because maybe it's yours too? Is it a rush to assume our roles or have I already let it self-fulfill? Will you rush now too, however hard you try not to? Or does a lack of love for myself fill me with this doubt? Is it my desire to win something I lost before? Or is it a lack of love for myself that fills me with this doubt? To not trust my emotion. And what if I don't do it for you how you need? How fruitful is it to be anxious when I know it's already decided? I enter the deep, scary, emotional nirvana Careful not to place you in the role of someone I need to win. Careful not to place you in the role of someone I need to replace. Careful to love you and not the torment. And so, surely, I love you. That was great. Thank you. Yeah. One of the things that I observed about both of these pieces is that they're both they're both great tone setters for the rest of the chapbook. The last three lines in Wounded Pages, uh, and though your pages may feel worn, your book remains to be written and still hesitant to open. And I thought that that really resonated with your dedication that you make at the beginning of the book, which it says dedicated to the kids that have had to be more like grown-ups and to the grown-ups that long to be kids. 
and this it's this idea of of maturing much earlier than you wanted to or experiencing mm-hmm. a lot of mature things when you probably shouldn't have mm-hmm. um that is a theme that's consistent throughout the rest of the book there so i thought that was a great first choice and surely mm-hmm. i love you also another great choice to follow that one up with because there's a lot of questioning in this one of yourself of bigger ideas and that's another thing that happens a lot throughout the rest of the uh, the book a lot of questioning about these ideas and things that you're experiencing and going through and feel free to correct me if I'm wrong but by the end of it there's still an uncertainty about all of these things that you've just discussed um, mm-hmm. yeah yeah 100% yeah you hit the nail on the head I think this is it's called the unreliable narrator wakes up because it's about you know me as a child having to become aware of my own unreliable narration of my life and the things that I had experienced at a young age that you're not maybe capable of, you know, narrating reliably to yourself as a child. So just aging into what things have actually meant and understanding them from an adult lens now, I think, yes, these poems sort of set the tone for that. And these ones in particular are from the beginning stages of a relationship that was very dear to me, maybe my first truly serious adult romantic relationship. And it felt essential to include these in particular because they displayed a naivety and blissfulness that I needed to depict before we got into some of the more cynical and painful poetry in the rest of the collection, because I think it really does set the tone for the like love and comfort that you might experience starting out as an innocent, you know, young adult. And then later we get into more feelings of whiplash and knowing not to get too comfortable and feelings of trauma that might get re-triggered from that. Mm-hmm. Kind of keeping in line with that that thought, what was your process in putting together uh, your chapbook? Like, um, there are a lot of experiences to be had. How did you choose or decide which experiences uh, needed to be included in this particular collection? Mm-hmm. Um, I think for me, it was more, again, like a serendipitous (laughs) collection that felt complete at the point of publication. I had these 20-something poems just in my notes app, (laughs) really, on my phone, and I would share them with friends and family, and everyone would be like, you know, these are good. You should do something with them. And there was finally one day where just looking at you know where we start with wounded pages to the last one which i think is the people that think they have it all figured out (laughs) it just felt like a standalone collection once i took a step back and looked at it all in full that i think i'm trying to say something with these series of poems which is that 
you know, there is a lot of questioning to be had. And I don't, did I ever like get to a place of like conclusion by the end of it? No, I think you mentioned earlier too, that there's still a lot of questioning um, by the end of it. But I think at least sharing the fact that there is important questioning to do of the relationships that you're in is, I guess, what I was trying to say with this chat book. And that's how I determine what to include. Your back cover mentions that a lot of these poems were written over the course of the early 2020s. You, you do end on, a, on like, a, like we've been talking about, a like kind of uncertainty, this continuous questioning. Have you continued to uh, write poetry uh, in your notes app? And if so, has there been, have there been any sort of answers or revelations to the poems you, you've included here? Yeah, good question. I have. I write a lot of poetry, I think, more easily now, too, just because I have less hesitation in the fact that I have a perspective to share. So I've actually written quite a bit more, but I, I try, I need to do some refining <laughs> in all of what I have written because it might just be a whole bunch of noise. But I think what I am finding in some of my newer writings since this chat book is that I'm, I'm trying to embrace the loneliness that comes with the self-awareness that I think I'm finding throughout the early 2020s and just, you know, growing up <laughs> as a young adult by myself here in Madison, just leaning into embracing that loneliness rather than just sustaining relationships for the sake of it, because, you know, I feel like I have to, or because, you know, we're locked up at home and didn't have anywhere to go, like just deciding I don't have to share my time with anyone if I don't want to, and just viciously protecting my energy. I think that's what some of my new poems are more about. So, yeah, <laughs> I don't know if that's like, it's not the most... Uh, optimistic answer to like some of the things that I've been dealing with in this chat book, but yeah, it's at least where things are at right now. Yeah, it's your truth for now. Yeah. If you're just joining us, we're here with Sahara Majumder talking about The Unreliable Narrator Wakes Up, her new chat book. So, Sahara, if you could please go ahead and read for our listeners Society Doesn't Protect Me on page 13. Okay. Yeah, we're getting into the darker stuff for sure. <laughs> Society doesn't protect me. Protecting us with the drugs you brought. Not victimizing us, no. Protecting us with every limb torn, every lynch, every experiment. See the protection bold in Washington, filled with monuments to enslavers. Blue suits of protection guarding the streets today. Protecting us with more accessible jumpsuits than white coats, protecting us in white collars. You don't save our lives because we don't know anything. Get over it, we're not in pain, we complain too much. 
when we're more likely to sell and get addicted, no, we don't need the drugs for our own good, really, protecting us when you lock us up for a hustle. No way out of our circumstances but prison. An extremely, highly, integrally beneficial pillar for our community. This protection, an embarrassed, committed devotion to barring you from the flood of our such threatening presence, culture, unexamined evil worldviews championing MLK like it's the only non-white name you need to know, lest we not be docile should you be forced to acknowledge us. And what are you protecting us from if not from you? We act so gentle because it's the righteous way to get y'all to understand. But even MLK knew in the end that was impossible. Hmm. Yeah. There's a lot in that one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you touch on a lot of topics. You There's the war on drugs, over-policing, prison system. Uh, the conversation of the correct way to advocate for oneself, peaceful protests versus riots, that kind of thing. Advocacy seems like a really important part of your life. And like this poem expresses a lot of frustration with the inequities experienced by BIPOC people. Could you speak a little to your interest in advocacy and how it appears in your art and work? Yeah, my interest in advocacy is prevalent in everything. So yeah, we talked a little bit about how this chapbook, you know, progresses into some more darker themes. And in my art, I think the advocacy shows up as like, wow, I can't even process like, you know, how much of a narcissist my ex was, because I'm still like looking at black and brown bodies brutalized on the news. Like, now I got to deal with, you know, the quote unquote, typical trials of, you know, being a young adult on top of now, you know, not feeling safe, going for a run in a hoodie outside at night, you know, like it's in my art, I think it, the advocacy shows up as just like exhaustion. Mm -hmm. Like I can't even like get to the stuff that I want to be able to focus on because like, I'm still so traumatized every day by all of these other things that, you know, a young Muslim raised first generation Bangladeshi American woman, you know, in STEM <laughs> has had to face. Those are a lot of identities that are often marginalized and have their own traumas on top of, you know, things that are quote unquote more normal to experience. So I think in my art, it shows up as just like, can we get a break? <laughs> so have you heard of Ibram Kendi? He wrote How to Be Anti-Racist. Yes. Um, he did a speech once at like UW-Madison, I think, um, like maybe two years ago or something. And he was talking about microaggressions and he was like, micro to whom? <laughs> Like, who is this micro for? Because this is no small, like, disturbance to me when I'm faced with it. And I think that that is just, like, another example of how, like, the language we use is still so white-centric. Like, yeah, oh, it's, like, a small way to be aggressive. Like, no, it's not. It's actually, like, like you know? <laughs> In my everyday life, too, you mentioned that I'm in healthcare tech. I think 
one of the reasons why I stay in it is because I'm really passionate about improving health equity, equity and increasing equitable access to healthcare. That's one of the things that I'm really passionate about, as well as increasing literacy. And I think those are two things that have been systemically kept from women, from BIPOC, from people that are historically marginalized. And part of poetry for me, too, is creating a space where people that you know, share identities to me can feel like, okay, yes, there is someone else that looks like me that is writing poetry and that I can relate to. This isn't just a space for Emily Dickinson and Robert Frost. Like this is a space for the descendants of Rumi. This is Rupi Kaur too. This is, you know, people that are willing to take it there and and call out a lot of the harms that we face in society so yeah advocacy is essential for me i couldn't live a fulfilling life without it right on. thank you in mentioning uh, or in speaking on how uh, your advocacy appears in your art i'm reminded that poetry isn't the only kind of avenue that you have uh, could you speak a little bit to your engagement in the world of fashion yeah, so in fashion, um, so I love fashion, but I hate uh, fast fashion, but it's, you know, kind of evil that you can't get around when you have the choice between spending, you know, 20 bucks for a pair of jeans or upwards of 100. So <laughs> one of the things that I have been trying to be more conscious about is how much uh, how much I am recycling the clothes that I wear. So I have been upcycling a lot of uh, high-end clothes that I'm either outgrowing or just no longer <laughs> am as interested in that I've kind of worn out for myself but are still in good quality condition and I don't want to contribute to generating more waste. Bangladesh, actually, their biggest industry is garments production. And uh, many people there don't make livable wages. Um, and uh, major corporations like H&M, Forever 21, Zara, uh, Urban Outfitters, they will outsource their work to places like Bangladesh, where they don't have to pay uh, anything close to what the minimum wage is in the US, which, let's be real, that's not even high enough as is. So, you know, just wanting better for the Bangladeshi people, not contributing to this fast fashion culture that is, you know, not creating livable wages for people in Bangladesh and is terrible for the environment and you know isn't isn't really doing anyone any favors at the end of the day so that's another way where advocacy has presented itself in fashion for me and a lot of so what I do with the clothes is upcycle them to have kind of like a tricked out rock and roll spin so you know I have this one shirt that I took some fabric paint and wrote a poem on actually and it goes 
Roses are red, violets are blue, Coco Chanel was a Nazi, and Hugo Boss and Balenciaga and, you know, all these other Nazi high-end brands uh, that have distanced themselves from their past. So, yeah, it's a fun way to, to get creative. Yeah, no, absolutely. And important, too. Like you said, it's another way that you practice advocacy. I'm reminded of like this whole Kanye West and Adidas and Gap situation, how he's trying to spin it to be like, oh, you know, it's these large corporations taking advantage of a of a black man. But I mean, just based on what you said, you know, these larger companies are always exploiting people of color around the world. So it seems very hypocritical for him to be coming out and saying like, oh, you know, support me in the in this boycott and all of that. Yeah. yeah. There's another poet who, shoot, I forget her name, but she's Kanye's ex-girlfriend. And she did a spoken word that you can find on YouTube. And one of the lines from her spoken word is, Jesus never needed Adidas to walk. Mm. Oh, okay. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. If you're just joining us, we're here with Sahara Majumdar talking about The Unreliable Narrator, her latest chapbook. Sahara, if you could please read for the people your poem, Religion Doesn't Protect Me, on page 14. Okay. Religion doesn't protect me. Everyone else has Christmas, and it's based on nonsense. And I feel like I have to say that to make myself feel better about wanting it. But still, everyone else has something to share. But what did I have? Not the beauty there is to be had, but the probing, the watchful eye, the annual starvation, not the generosity, the humbling, the purging. Who do I turn to when the world is cruel? With abusive owners afraid I will burn or worse, bring shame so far removed from what the loving prophets would have preached, so far removed from the spiritual worship that is unconditional love. In this place, wardens checking in constantly on the measure of my piety five times a day, controllers not independent enough to function separately from their controllers or maybe servants that gain solace from it, or maybe more willful subscribers on account of picking what aids their manipulation. So where am I to go when I must break down the lunar calendar to justify the time away, when the community can't settle on a single day for the holiday, when we turn a blind eye on Isa's own land, what kind of people are these to put my faith in? Can I give up the turmoil to join with the ease in everyone else and live in peace? Guilt and shame betray me, having seen the light to prohibit that forever. I can't build spirituality on myths. Hmm. I really like that last line there. I can't build spirituality on myths. That's a yeah. that seems to be a little bit of a trend with your poems. You you end on these great stingers. <laughs> yeah. Uh, how has religion influenced your growth and journey into adulthood and how has it changed? Yeah. I like to say that religion slash piety maybe is a gift that I haven't received yet. (laughs) I struggle to form my own beliefs around religion and spirituality because um, 
I candidly grew up in an abusive household and, and still my analytical and spiritual side struggles to dispel maybe all of what I was raised to believe because part of me just from a scientific perspective, historical perspective, believes a lot of what I was taught, but then part of me doesn't and struggles with discerning what is man-made, what is something that is taught to us to control us, because that is a lot of how religion was used against me. And I think it's a shame because I do think that there is a lot within all religions that comes from a place of truth, but we've distanced ourselves so much from what's at the crux of it. So yeah, religion is something that I struggle with in my adulthood, but in in some ways I feel it is the aspect of my life I'm the most evolved in. Like I don't necessarily have a super happy place that I'm at with like maintaining adult relationships right now. Like I said, I'm, you know, viciously protecting my energy, but with religion, it's like, I am confident in knowing what I don't know. Um, And maybe part of my spirituality is that I don't think it's capable. Like, I don't think we are capable of knowing um, so much of it. And I'm, I'm in more of an accepting space with that. But I think organized religion is something that I wish I could get behind more, but there's maybe just too much trauma there. Mm -hmm. So then how would you say these days spirituality is, uh, is part of your life or how do you practice spirituality or how does that surround you? It's interesting that you ask because I wouldn't say that I am an atheist. I am agnostic, but I also don't know to what extent I am agnostic because I don't know that I fully believe that uh, any higher being is completely hands off. Um, And I do believe in the, the realm of the supernatural. Like I believe in spirit being able to communicate with us believe in the fact that I have spirit guides and think I, you know, have had encounters with, you know, things beyond the veil (laughs) that (laughs) traditional science, at least at this point in time, can't explain. And it's almost like those encounters with paranormal phenomena make me believe in a higher being more because it's the only way that I feel like these encounters can make sense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it it doesn't, I, I am not of the camp that when you die, nothing happens. <laughs> I am of the camp that there's more to this world than we as humans can perceive or possibly ever know. So I think that's just where I'm at spiritually. I'm very open to non-traditional <laughs> explanations for physical phenomena that we go through every single day. I try to keep an open mind and I think where things get gray for me again is when, you know, 
for example, something that's really popular right now is tarot mm -hmm. and astrology. And um, I think growing up, I would have been taught that anything that has anything to do with magic is immoral and you should not know about it. But nowadays I find myself thinking like, okay, this is just another form of me practicing science. Like I'm just studying the movement of celestial bodies. Like I'm just tapping into my intuition and what has been studied for centuries. So why is this any different? Why is this inherently magic? Yeah, I think I'm getting into a tangent. Maybe I should write a poem about this. <laughs> but yeah, I yeah, to answer your question, religion is something I struggle with and I definitely lean more into spirituality in a broader sense. Mm -hmm. I mean, just to comment on that science thing, I mean, science is just magic with more details, to be honest, <laughs> TBH. Yeah. But yeah, if you're just joining us, we're here with Sahara Majumder talking about the release of The Unreliable Narrator, uh, her latest collection of poetry. Sahara, if you could, please, for the people, read your poems, Who's Left, on page 21, and follow with At My Table on page 29. Yeah. Who's Left? Nice to meet you over faint clinks of glasses in a dark, poorly lit bar that we find so fulfilling to crowd. City to city, easily picking them up, magnets attracted to my polarizing energy. Betrayal in different shapes, rapidly or sneakily, but in them all, complete with the same feigning interest and energy in continuing the search. My own shortcomings and pressure to own this, forcing me to question how quantitative and legitimate my salvation efforts were. But when the mutually self-serving social contract disintegrates, where is that for all my life love at anymore? What is a friend, a sister, a brother, if not someone willing to fight for you, fight to understand you? Or is it supposed to have been simple by nature all along? And it was never meant for me or was meant to bring me something other than their company. But what have I gained? Another search become exhausting and uninteresting. The heaving, the shallow, deep, dull, heavy, unclear, overwhelmed heaving of my chest that I avoid so much. How do I know when it's time to give in to the process and mourn? So this is what it is to grow and see who is left, the few that survive the trials of time. And then at my table, at my table, not many of us are gathered, us well-defined through who has persisted through time-turned virtues into values to stand for worth honing a seat beside. At my table, the inherent ease envelops. We join to indulge topical conversation and deeper insights all the same to know and love another more. None are so foolish to deny the table ignites fury, passion, strife, belonging. We insight inward reflection and growth, reject discomfort with open arms and share ourselves openly. My table, a cultivated space, I strive to host for my whole life, a table where if ego is a sin, then I no longer sit where I might be the topic when I get up. 
Thank you. I think the reason I asked you to read these two together is because I think they pair very well together. And it also speaks to, these two also speak to a really hard part about adulthood, which is um, relationships, relationships of all kind, romantic, platonic, parental, what have you, familial. I know certainly it's been one of the biggest challenges that I've experienced, you know, navigating my 20s. Um, Relationships are hard to establish, harder to nurture. So you talk about giving in to the process of losing people and subsequently mourning. How have you come to your understanding of how relationships should fulfill you? Yeah, I think the it's interesting that you bring up the part about mourning because I think that has been huge in me sort of redefining what I want relationships to look like for me, whether that is with sisters or, you know, friends that, you know, you'll say you'll be friends forever, but like how many of those friends do you actually end up being friends with forever? It's really been a process of grieving what I thought those relationships would be that allowed me to come to terms with what kind of relationships I do want to make time for. And like I mentioned before, you know, um, I, where I'm at with the relationships that I have, whether it's romantic, platonic, with family, um, I am trying to be more comfortable with loneliness and not just, you know, trying to make things work with a friend or a parent or whatever, just for the sake of not having conflict, like learning how to protect my energy for my inner peace and valuing that over just like being conflict avoidant that's where I'm at with like the adult relationships that I'm trying to sustain right now. You know, maybe that will change, but that's just where I'm at with it right now. Not really trying to expend more energy on relationships that are doing less to heal me at this time. Cause I mean, like a lot of the themes in this poetry are about being exhausted with trauma that we face, like, outside of home, outside of our friendship circles. So like, why do I want to keep perpetuating that with the people that I do make time for? Um, So yeah, I think honestly, just leaning more into myself and away from others is where I'm at. Mm -hmm. So I know you moved to Madison in 2019, shortly before the pandemic began. Just hearing you speak about that made me wonder how this move, how the pandemic, all of these uh, world events that happened um, subsequently influenced your influenced your relationship building and your capacity for holding relationships. Yeah, it's been hard. I had maybe like six months after I moved here before the world changed. <laughs> and I met a lot of people at that time that I'm still, you know, we might not talk every day, but I'm still close with. But then I also met a lot of people that I did talk to every day that I probably will never talk to again. And I think a lot of like who is 
selfish showed up during the pandemic, you know, who's willing to mask, who's not willing to mask, who's willing to vaccinate, who's not. And then also after the murder of George Floyd, I was simultaneously dealing with some racism at work where there were folks, you know, calling me out of my name. One of the names they called me was Sashimi. Mm. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And just disappointing all around to see how some friends responded to that and how, you know, it felt like I was screaming into a void trying to explain in Wisconsin how this is like not something that I like would ever dream of encountering growing up in diverse West Palm Beach, (laughs) which I mean, West Palm Beach is a totally different landscape now. Um, no thanks to Trump living down the street now, but, Mm. um, (laughs) but yeah, Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, yeah, I mean that too, um, the insurrection, um, you know, Trump living 15 minutes from my house now, like it kind of feels like I'm a little bit of a displaced person these days where the, 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 the people that, you know, are about uh, being your friend, having your back, you know, defending you, whether or not it affects their working relationships with people at work or, You know, whether it means that they don't go out to the bar that night because they're feeling under the weather, like a lot of that came to the surface. And there was like a great purging, Mm -hmm. I think, of friends and um, coworkers and things that I was willing to tolerate. And honestly, it was for the better. So, I mean, it's rough, but I think I'm grateful for it, too. If you're just joining us, we're here with Sahara Majumder talking about the unreliable narrator wakes up, um, her latest release. Sahara, if you could read for the people. On page 43, your poem titled, Eat. All right. Um, Eat. An overachiever, bound by the need to flourish on her own, constantly determined to escape, fearless with greatness on the mind, Hidden beyond the naive eye, I never saw the systemic issues. Jewish state money, Karen money, looted money never loses. Oh, indeed, it is rigged to put and keep quiet the non-white enough. Really slow the f*** down. Unbelievable that you could dream of visiting and dining with us. You can't sit with us. We are the xenophobes and you're not white. Zero chance you eat as much as us. Wonderful. Thank you. This is another one uh, similar to uh, society doesn't protect me, religion doesn't protect me. It's a, it is a frustrated poem, I feel, um, an expression of a lot of those frustrations. One thing that I was kind of uh, lingering on, though, with regard to this one and another one that appears earlier is that uh, the majority of your collection of poems are freeform. This one is an abecedarian, and the, uh, there's an earlier one that appears in your collection called Cryfer that appears as an acrostic poem. So uh, I was just curious, what was your thought process when choosing to include poems with specific forms over freeform? Yeah. So with this one and with Cryfor, um, I was mostly 
first inspired to write in that form. And then the subject matter really just came along. Like with this one in particular, I just started toying with the idea of starting with the letter A and it spilled out literally. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I guess it just goes to show how much racial trauma is on my mind that it just came out as easily as it did. But yeah, I, I, I think it's a lot of my poetry is visual poetry too. Like I wonder how much of it really translates when I read it out loud, because even with some of the prose in the chat book, the the stanza and sentence structure is like very visually constructed and this is one where i think the abc's delineate again just how prevalent uh racism is to me Mm -hmm. that i easily was able to write about it from a through z (laughs) (laughs) yeah we are coming close to an end. So I want to give you the opportunity to uh, to read a poem uh, of your choice, <laughs> one that we didn't cover earlier, uh, one that you think you'd love to share with the people. Oh, geez. Well, maybe I will share one that is not in the chat book. Okay. Um, so this one's called Kittens in the Movies. In the movies, at the locker, boys wait by the one they memorized to be yours to ask you to the dance. And you're cute while you spin the lock and flip your hair, opening a portal to your personality, posters and lights and maybe a book or two juxtaposed and nested within the cold series of your neighbor's own portals against the jail cell wall of the high school. In the movies, the kittens are soft and cuddly, display models, that don't have rough tongues or sharp claws or ridges on the upside of their mouth or gross insides of their ears. But in life, we unlock the hard way that a portal can be anywhere if you romanticize your own reality. Mm. Mm. Thank you. I yeah. hope to hear that one or see that one in the sequel whenever that's coming yeah. out. <laughs> yeah. Well, I want to thank you for uh, joining us here today. Uh, it was really a pleasure to talk with you. Before we go, do you want to share where uh, listeners can pick up your book and also where they can find your fashion? Oh, <laughs> yeah. So fashion currently selling at Upshift on East Johnson. It is a uh, store that is committed to sustainable fashion through swapping your clothes out for other clothes so really cool concept i encourage everyone to check it out even not just for my line but because it's a dope store and as far as poetry it's available at most local bookstores leopold's mystery to me uh kismet and i feel like i'm forgetting one in there but It's also available at Barnes and Nobles on the west side um, and online at Mm barnesandnobles.com. And Barnes and Noble, they got the uh, the signed copies right now. So that's true. Go get it. (laughs) Um, All right. I have been talking with Sahara Majumder, author of The Unreliable Narrator Wakes Up, 
My name is Jonas Gomez Tijerino, and you've been listening to Madison Bookbeat on Community Radio, WORT 89.9 FM, Madison. Up next is Three Hours of Jazz with Alex Wilding White, but first, the Insurgent Radio Kiosk. Have a great afternoon. Sahara, thank you so much. Thank you.